Good morning. Turn, if you would, to Exodus chapter 16. Uh, before we actually start reading that, and I will read that, just want to let you know what uh, I'm going to be studying this uh, with you this morning and this evening. Uh, this morning, we're going to look at the details of this. This is a very uh, familiar story, uh, manna from heaven. We've heard it all many times as kids and even as, as adults. So we're going to st- study, really, Exodus 16 and see what really happened here and what God was doing uh, with the people of Israel. And then this, this evening, we're going to look to see what Jesus had to say about manna because he had some very important things to say uh, about this time period and what it meant and what he meant in relation to it. So we're going to look, uh, look at that this evening. Uh, the bulletin said that I was doing chapter 15. Obviously, uh, they corrected that when they announced it. Uh, I don't know uh, if someone's going to go back to chapter 15, but what we did with ch- chapter 15 was basically, so you know, is the Song of Moses talking about the victory over um, Egypt and over Pharaoh, and then there's the account of uh, God providing fresh water after three days from the uh, departure from Egypt. So. We're going into chapter 16 uh, this morning, and before we uh, read that, just to give you some sort of uh, overview of how I approached this, I haven't done a lot of uh, teaching uh, on the Old Testament other than prophetic books. As we know, we studied the book of Revelation, we talk about Zechariah, Ezekiel, the book of Daniel. So for me, it was more of a challenge because I think of these as stories. You know, we all kind of grew up with the stories in the Old Testament, and we know they were for the people of Israel, and it's not always easy to find out, well, what's this supposed to mean to me? So uh, it's more of a challenge, and and I feel very uh, grateful that I was given this uh, chapter to study because God goes out of his way, as we'll see, to tell us what it is He wants us to understand about this time and manna in particular and what he was doing with his people at the time. So he gives us the story, and then he says, this is why I did it this way. So we'll find that out. And obviously, uh, the other part of uh, studying the Old Testament, which when, I don't know if you all are here for Rob Sullivan, but he really went into some of the historical and archaeological proofs that the Word of God is accurate. Well, I already knew that. I don't really need to have those things, but they sure are exciting when you find archaeology prove the Bible. So the history of the Bible is accurate history, uh, and then there are things that God wants us to know uh, about it. So let's go ahead and read Exodus chapter 16, and then we'll take a look at the details. Then they set out from Elim... And all the congregation of the sons of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the fifteenth day of the second month after their departure from the land of Egypt. The whole congregation of the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. The sons of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the pots of meat, when we ate bread to the full, For you have brought us into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you, 
and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them whether or not they will walk in my instruction. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the sons of Israel, at evening, you will know that the Lord has brought you out of the land of Egypt, and in the morning you will see the glory of the Lord, for he hears your grumblings against the Lord, and what are we that you grumble against us? Moses said, this will happen when the Lord gives you meat to eat in the evening and bread to the full in the morning, for the Lord hears your grumblings which, we, which you grumble against him. And what are we? Your grumblings are not against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, Say to all the congregation of the sons of Israel, Come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumblings. It came about as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the sons of Israel that they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And the Lord said to Moses, spoke to Moses, saying, I have heard the grumblings of the sons of Israel. Speak to them, saying, At twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God. So it came about at evening that the quails came up and covered the camp, in the morning, and in the morning, there was a layer of dew around the camp. When the layer of dew evaporated, behold, on the surface of the wilderness, there was a fine flake-like thing, fine as the frost on the ground. When the sons of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It is the bread which the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it every man as much as he should eat. You shall take an omer apiece according to the number of persons each of you has in his tent. The sons of Israel did so, and some gathered much and some little. When they measured it with an omer, he who had gathered much had no excess, and he who had gathered little had no lack. Every man gathered as much as he should eat. Moses said to them, Let no man leave any of it until morning. But they did not listen to Moses, and some left part of it until morning, and it bred worms and became foul, and Moses was angry with them. They gathered it morning by morning, every man as much as he should eat, but when the sun grew hot, it would melt. Now, on the sixth day, they gathered twice as much bread, two omers for each one. When all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, then he said to them, This is what the Lord meant. Tomorrow is a Sabbath observance, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake, and boil what you will boil, and all that is left over put aside to be kept until morning. So they put it aside until morning as Moses ordered, and it did not become foul, nor was there any worm in it. Moses said, Eat it today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you will gather it, but on the seventh, the Sabbath, there will be none. It came about on the seventh day that some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. Then the Lord said to Moses, How long do you refuse to keep my commandments and my instructions? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath, therefore he gives you bread for two days. On the sixth day, remain every man in his place. Let no man go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. The house of Israel named it manna, and it was like coriander seed, white and its taste was like wafers with honey. Then Moses said, This is what the Lord has commanded. Let an omerful of it be kept throughout your generations, 
that they may see the bread that I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. Moses said to Aaron, take a jar and put an omer full of manna in it and place it before the Lord to be kept throughout your generations. As the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron placed it before the testimony to be kept. The sons of Israel ate the manna 40 years. Until they came to an, an inhabited land, they ate manna until they came to the border of the land of Canaan. Now an omer is a tenth of an ephah. I'm sure that was helpful to you, <laughs> you who cook with ephahs. Omers are basically slightly over two quarts. So that relates to our measurement. So this is the story of, of manna. We're going to look to some extent at another area where it discusses this provision, and that's Numbers 11. We'll go there when uh, necessary. But those are the two basic places that we find in the Old Testament about how this worked. And it's important to understand how it worked because uh, God was very explicit as to what he wanted the people of Israel to do and how they were to gather it, eat it, and you know, not gather it in certain circumstances. So what are some of the details that we need to look at? When did this happen? This event, when it started, as it says in uh, verse 1, it was the 15th day of the second month after their departure. So 45 days after the exodus, uh, the manna begins, and they start to eat bread from heaven. Uh, up until that point, it doesn't really say exactly what they were doing. Uh, they, mu they might have been eating things they took with them. They might have been able to get stuff from the land. But th that, that issue had come to an end for them, and they needed provision from God. And so uh, th this was God's provision. Where were they? They were in a place called the Wilderness of Sin. It's between a place called Elam and Sinai. Basically, they were not yet to Sinai where we know they, they were going to be given the Ten Commandments and a lot of instruction. And what was the problem? There was a complaint. Verses 2 and 3, uh, as it's very clear, it says the whole assembly, everybody was complaining, we're hungry. We want to go back to Egypt. There's food there. They kind of forgot that they were slaves, and Pharaoh was very cruel to them, but they did have food there. So they were thinking, well, let's go back. This isn't working out. So now remember, you know, they've, they've seen all these things from God. Uh, they've been delivered mightily, all of this, and yet they're ready to cave in and say, we, we just want to go back. God's really not big enough to handle this. Uh, and so God did respond. Verse 4, God says to them, to, to Moses, this is what I'm going to do. Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you. The people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them whether or not they will walk in my instruction. So he explains to them very clearly that he's going to do this, and he tells them his purpose. His primary purpose is not to feed them. He could have done that in a million different ways. He says, that I may test them. So the very beginning of this, God's making it clear that the manna, while it will provide them nutrition beyond any that they could ever imagine, 
because uh, it's from God, but his primary purpose in the way that he fed them is I need to test these people. So the beginning of this makes it clear what God's uh, purpose is behind the manna. And as we can see, many times, even in this chapter, they didn't do what he said. Okay? He was very clear about how it was to be gathered. So what was God going to do? Verse 8 and verse 12 explains that he was going to rain uh, have bread come down from heaven, and in this instance, he also explains that he's going to provide them with meat, quail, that would come in the evening. We're going to talk again about that because the numbers uh, account of the quail is also important to see, but in that case, it involved judgment on the people of Israel as well. We don't see any judgment in Exodus chapter 16 when he gave them some meat. It was Numbers 11 where the account talked about judgment. So what were the rules? The rules for gathering the manna, God was very explicit. Uh, they show up in verses 16 through 30. So let's just take a look at some of the highlights of that, just to uh, refresh our recollection. They were to gather as much as they needed for a, a day of a little over two quarts. They were not to take any more. And on the Sabbath, or the day before the Sabbath, they were to gather a double portion uh, so they didn't have to work on the Sabbath. Uh, they, they violated the first rule, and as, as soon as they did it, the stuff starts to rot. There's worms in it. It becomes foul. But then when God provides them the double portion, or the extra on the day before the Sabbath, miraculously, it doesn't rot. So he's got it all set up. They start to violate it right away. And then it sounds like they finally got their act together in, in verse 30. And says, so the people rested on the seventh day. So they, God dealt with them, and it sounded like you know, they, they got it down. This is what, how God wants us to, to do this. So what was this? And that, that's interesting in and of itself because the, the name manna in an, a more ancient uh, uh, Hebrew dialect actually means what is it? So when they named it, they used the name, what is it, to name it, manna. I kind of like that. Pretty obvious. What is it? That's what we'll call it. We don't know. <laughs> but we do know some things about it. And I've extracted some of the details just so we can see that there's a lot of detail about what this stuff was and how it worked. So first we know that it came in the morning. The dew comes down. The dew evaporates. There it is. So it's just like laying there on, on the ground, on the plants, wherever. And they went and they gathered it, and they were to gather it in the morning. So it, it, uh, it said also it, it, that it melted in the sun. So they had to gather it in the morning because there was only a limited time for which they could gather it. And then it sort of melted and they couldn't gather it anymore. Uh, in verses, uh, verse 13, it says it was flake-like, okay? Uh, as fine as the frost on the ground. So I know we're in Florida, some of you from up north, you've seen frost. It really is, when you look at frost, its pieces are small. So it, look, it sounds like the actual pieces of manna on them, by themselves were fairly small, but there were masses, massive quantities of it, and it looked like this flake-like thing. I started thinking of like mashed potatoes, you know, instant mashed potatoes, only real small ones, because it's flaky. And then it says that it was like, uh, in, in Numbers 11, we get a little more. 
uh, where it says uh, it was like coriander seed. And then it also says it looked like something called bdellium. Now, I thought that was a rock. And I started doing a little research. And in, in some places, that's described almost like a resin that comes from certain trees. So I wasn't real clear whether God was talking about something that looked like this special crystal or was this resin. But uh, some believe that it, it, it was resin-like, even though it was, had flakes to it, because it needed to stick together. Because they ended up making this into cakes and, and you know, other things that they boiled or baked. Not real clear what that is, but, but it is clear that uh, it, was, it was flaky. And then when they, when they boiled it or baked it, it had both a taste we just read like honey, and then in certain circumstances, it's, it tasted like cakes baked with oil. So the flavor seemed to be kind of multiple in a way. It didn't have just one flavor to it. The other thing is they survived on it for 40 years. In addition to the meat, which we'll talk about, the primary staple of what they had was this manna, and for 40 years it was enough. And you think to yourself, really? You know, could it really be enough? Well, it's God. And I was thinking about what my wife is doing. She's now baking our own bread. Okay? But she doesn't just buy flour. She buys the, the wheat grain, and they're sort of insulated, no preservatives, no, nothing done to them until you're ready to grind it and make the bread. Well, what she told me after reading this was that a grain of just regular wheat that's unprocessed has pretty much all the nutrients that people need to live on except maybe vitamin A and vitamin D. So uh, you could see that even though that's not a miraculous food, the idea that just a bread-like substance can be enough for a person to live on isn't so far-fetched. And, and we're eating bread now that has a lot more nutrition than the stuff we would buy at the store because of that. But they lived on it for 40 years. The other thing you got to think about is all ages. That's all they had to eat. And when you feed a baby something that we would normally eat, it doesn't work so well. But somehow this did. In other words, they were able to feed it to all age groups for 40 years, and it was appropriate uh, for all of their nutritional needs. That's just miraculous. There's nothing we have that does that in our normal uh, provision. So God provided something in that way that was quite, uh, I think, miraculous. The other thing we know is that it ended. Take a look at Joshua 5, and we'll see when the provision for manna stopped. Joshua chapter 5, verses 10 through 12. So it says, While the sons of Israel camped at Gilgal, they observed the Passover on the evening of the 14th day of the month on the desert plains of Jericho. On the day after the Passover, on that very day, they ate some of the produce of the land, unleavened cakes and parched grain. The manna ceased on the day after they had eaten some of the produce of the land. So the sons of Israel no longer had manna, but they ate some of the yield of the land of Canaan during that year. So 
They started eating food from the land, the, the manna ends, and then they go in to Jericho. Take a look now uh, at, at the issue of the quail. We, we see in Exodus 16 that God clearly told Moses, I'm going to provide you with quail in the evening and the manna in the morning. And I remembered the account of the quail vaguely in my head, and I was thinking, well, I thought the quail was a problem because they complained, and it turned out to be an issue. And that is the case. It doesn't say that on this event, though. This event happened 45 days after they left uh, Egypt. Take a look now at Numbers 11, if you flip over there. Numbers chapter 11, we're going to read uh, a little bit of this account because it's important to understand that it, this is a, an actually a different time. The time that they were here is, is literally after Sinai, and this account takes place 13 months later. So first one we were at was 45 days later when they were told they were going to get meat and manna, and that started. And then here in Numbers 11, this is 13 months um, after they had left Egypt. And what happens here is the people complain. Verse 4, the rabble who were among them had greedy desires, and also the sons of Israel wept again and said, Who will give us meat to eat? We remember the fish and we used to eat, that we used to eat free in Egypt and the cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic. But now our appetite is gone. There is nothing at all to look at except this manna. All right? So it doesn't make it clear what happened between the 45 uh, days after leaving Egypt and this period, which is 13 months later. But it appears obvious that the quail that they were getting didn't go for the whole time. Otherwise, why would they be complaining and, and wanting meat? So somehow... In this period of time, the manna had obviously continued, but they weren't getting quail anymore. And so now they were back complaining, and they wanted meat. On this event, God gave them meat. And if you read through Numbers 11, you see that he said, for a month, you're going to have it. For a month, you're going to just eat meat. And he judged them, and he said, as soon as this meat is between your teeth, I'm going to start judging you because you complained again. So in this case, giving them this meat was associated with, with a judgment. I just point that out because I had always thought that they were at the same time, but it's clear that they did occur at two different times. What is obvious is uh, that this was associated with uh, judgment and that it was because of their complaining. Throughout the whole time, though, the manna continued. And finally, one other detail that we read in Exodus 16. If you take a look at uh, verse 32, go back to Exodus 16. Verse 32. It was important for uh, the children of Israel to remember this provision. So what he told them to do, verse 32, 
Then Moses said, this is what the Lord has commanded. Let an omer full of it be kept throughout your generations that they may see the bread that I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the lands of Egypt. Then Moses said to Aaron, take a jar and put an omer full of manna in it and place it before the Lord to be kept throughout your generations. As the Lord commanded, so Aaron placed it before the testimony to be kept. Flip forward to the New Testament because there is a reference to this. Go to Hebrews 9. If you look at Hebrews 9, verses 1 through 5, it gives us a little more detail of, of what happened. In talking about the first covenant, which was the covenant God made with Israel, now even the first covenant had regulations of divine worship and the earthly sanctuary, for there was a tabernacle prepared, the outer one in which were the lampstand and the table and the sacred bread. This is called the holy place. Behind the second veil, there was a tabernacle, which is called the Holy of Holies, having a golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant, covered all sides with gold, in which was a golden jar holding the manna, and Aaron's rod which budded, and the tables of the covenant, and above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowed, overshowing shadowing the mercy seat. But of these things we cannot... Now speak in detail. So what we find is, in addition to the jar of manna, two other things were placed in the Ark of the Covenant, uh, Aaron's staff and the tablets of the Ten Commandments. And this manna obviously just kept preserved. I mean, you know, didn't rot, nothing happened to it. It was to be kept there so they would remember what God did for them in the wilderness in addition to the law and to remembering what they did uh, with the miracles and Aaron's staff. So going back to the initial thought, though, God said, I'm doing this to test you. And the thing that he was testing them with was, will you do what I say in reliance on me day by day? And the first thing they did was, oh, we got to get more of this stuff. Why? Because they must not have really believed that it was going to come down every day. They, they had to trust God. And the first thing they did was not trust him. And eventually they saw it every day and, and they believed that it was going to happen. After their wandering was done, uh, God told Israel very clearly what his purposes were in their wandering and regarding the manna. And he gives more detail. It's a very uh, familiar verse. It's one that Jesus quoted uh, when he was tempted by Satan. Take a look at Deuteronomy 8, verses 2 and 3. <clears throat> You shall remember all the way which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether or not, whether you would keep his commandments or not. He humbled you and let you be hungry and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, 
that he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. That was why he used manna. His main point in feeding them in this way, and again, he could have chosen to feed them in any other way, was that I want you to understand, ultimately, that this came from me. You had no responsibility for it. You didn't even understand it. You called it, what is it? And it came from me, but it was just food. His ultimate message to them is, man, you don't even live by bread alone, even that I provide it from heaven. Man lives by everything that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. So he's saying, not only listen to what I say, but do what I say. And his ultimate goal was for them to understand that he was the provider of, of everything. Now, if you take a look at uh, when Jesus was, uh, as we know, uh, tempted by Satan, there were a few things that Jesus was tempted with, and one of which was he was hungry, having you know, been in the, in the wilderness himself. And Satan said, turn these stones into bread. You're the son of God. Just do that. And he went back to this verse in Deuteronomy where God was explaining the purpose of the manna and said to them, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So he was using manna as an indication of his obedience. And as we'll see t tonight, we're going to learn a lot more about what Jesus thought about manna as it related to him. And the illustration that the nation of Israel was given about the purpose of manna is completely expanded by Jesus when he's, he's actually challenged uh, by the Pharisees uh, on, on whether or not he's going to give them more food. They had just witnessed uh, a feeding of the 5,000, and, and the issue of manna came up again. So in the uh, couple of minutes that we have left, I wanted to sort of give you a, a little nugget of information that sort of came to me. It's maybe kind of obvious to you uh, as you've thought this through, but uh, it really uh, sprung out of me as I was studying these people. Right? The people of Israel uh, are perplexing to, to me or have been to me and, and maybe to you as you watch them go through this over and over again. Uh, it seems as though they really are a bunch of fools. Like they see God work miraculously over and over again. You know, pillars of fire, pillars of smoke, plagues, uh, manna from heaven, all of these things that I guess I just think, wow, if that had been in front of me, there's no way that I would have so quickly decided God can't provide. I mean, look, look what he did. And yet, over and over again, we see that they do that. They disobey, they complain, they don't believe that God's going to provide, they whine. They, they actually, the, the interesting thing is they, they always look at Moses and sort of think, you got this thing going with God, and that's good, but he's not really ours yet. We're not sure. You know, you go and you have your meetings with him, and then you come back and tell us things. But it's not like the way you think about God. 
they sort of looked at him like from a little bit more of a distance and said, he's a scary God, he is providing, but when it's getting rough, Moses, Moses, you fix this. They didn't go to God themselves, they went to Moses, right? They weren't going to God the way we go to God, and that was the clue to me, because I thought, I don't need miracles to prove God is who he is and to keep my relationship with him. I mean, do you need that? You don't really need that as believers. Uh, I think it's neat when you hear things that God does. I've heard stories even here about how God has provided for people in ways that can only be explained by, you know, God's providence and, you know, perhaps miraculous events that he causes to take place. But we don't need them. And I think, well, why don't we? Why, why, why are we confident in our God? And these people weren't. And I think the obvious answer and the thing that we don't, I didn't give uh, proper credit for was they didn't have what we have residing in us. We have the Holy Spirit. We may underestimate the capacity of the Holy Spirit to keep us uh, the way that we're kept. Take a look at uh, John 16, 12 through 15. Again, God is often very obvious, and sometimes we don't always connect the dots. <clears throat> Jesus is talking, and he says, I have many more things to say to you now, but you cannot bear, bear them now. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come? He will glorify me, and he will take of mine and will disclose it to you. All things that the Father has are mine, therefore I said that he takes of mine and will disclose it to you. That is something they did not have. We have the, the disclosure from the Son of God about, it says, it says, all things that the Father has are mine, therefore uh, he takes of mine and will disclose it to you. It's not leaving anything out in terms of disclosure. And I believe that our confidence that God is who he is compared to what we see from the nation of Israel is because of the Holy Spirit in us. It's everything. But for them, but for the Holy Spirit, I think we'd be doing the same thing in spite of miracles. I mean, we, we hear Jesus we were talking last night to uh, my kids about that story of uh, the beggar, Lazarus, and the rich man. Uh, we, we're familiar with that, where uh, the beggar was eating the crumbs at the table, and, and uh, uh, they both died, and the rich man was in hell. The beggar was, it says, in Abraham's bosom, which is heaven. And he, the, the, the man who had died who was in hell said, you know, Send, send him back to my brother so they don't, they get it, that they'll believe. And he said to them, no, they have Moses and the prophets. Even if a man were to come back from the dead, they would not believe. So he's saying the same thing. A miracle doesn't make people believe. It didn't make the Israelites believe, and it wouldn't have, in this case, you know, made this person believe. So it just made me appreciate what we have uh, in the Holy Spirit. So again, t tonight what we're going to do is take a look at
how Jesus uh, viewed manna and, and the depth with, with which uh, he really made it clear that manna was about him. It was an illustration ultimately about him and even to, to the effect that we have the Lord's Supper. So with that, let's uh, close in prayer, and we'll see you tonight. Dear Lord, we just thank you for your word that's uh, true. We thank you that you're faithful, that you're faithful to the, your children, the people of Israel, that you will save, Lord. And we just ask that you would go with us as we uh, leave here, and that you would give us safety and bring us back uh, tonight to study more about uh, what what you meant by providing this miraculous food and what you want us to know from it. We just uh, thank you and ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.